Building wealth is the ultimate goal for every entrepreneur. But here's the problem. Not all of us make it to the finish line. How do we achieve product market fit here in the Caribbean? How do we attract investors into our startups? How do you become one of the few winners who makes it? Those are the questions, and this podcast will provide the answers. I'm Sandra Glasgow, co-founder of Jamaica's First Angel Investor Network, First Angels JA. I've dedicated the past 40 years to developing our entrepreneurial ecosystem and created the Caribbean's first virtual incubator, RevUp. And I'm Cordell Williams, CEO of Transformational Life Solutions and president of the Young Entrepreneurs Association, where we help entrepreneurs to grow personally, professionally, and commercially. Together, we'll share our experience and our network of successful entrepreneurs winning right now. This is From Startup to Scale-Up, a podcast by RevUp Caribbean and the Young Entrepreneurs Association. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the first in our podcast series, From Startup to Scale-Up with our very special guest, Michael Leachin. Michael, it's such an honor to be interviewing you as the first guest in our podcast series this evening. You know, we were very deliberate in interviewing you as our first guest, because for most of the people who will listen to the podcast, you are the ultimate face of business success. You have achieved billionaire status. You've made the Forbes list several times. And you are one of only two billionaires making the Forbes list of 2022 from the Caribbean. And I dare say the other billionaire, Rihanna, is in good company. Good. (laughs) So having known you now for 20 years, I've heard you speak many times about how you made your wealth as an investment advisor. And more particularly, your investment philosophy modeled on the tenets of one of your heroes, Warren Buffett. But this evening, I'd like you to share your experiences and your philosophy more broadly, taking you back to the 36-year-old who embarked on a business that has eventually led you to where you are today. As the members of our audience are primarily young, some of them not so young, men and women starting and scaling businesses across the Caribbean, who all aspire to be wealthy. We want to hear from you this evening. So I hope that we can have a wonderful conversation. We're going to be having questions from our audience. But I just wanted to start by asking you, what motivated you to start a business of your own? And how did you deal with the rejection that I've heard you speak about when you first started. Uh, Thank you very much, Sandra. I'm excited to be here. And I'm actually honored to be here to be the first guest on your show. So in terms of what motivates me, well, I wanted to be independent. Independent so that I could choose how I spend my time 
who I spend my time with and to be able to achieve and pursue my aspirations. So those were some of the motivations that I had when I decided that I'm going to take the leap of faith. What about the rejection that you faced along the way? Because I know you have talked about, <laughs> you know, having to go door to door in a country that in which, you know, you were sort of a stranger at the time. What was that like? How did you deal with that? By way of context, I'm a civil engineer. When I first started, I, mean, I was on scholarship from Jamaica. And then, so I had to come back to Jamaica for two years, I, which would now take me from 1974 to 1976. At the end of the two-year period, I went back to Canada and I couldn't get a job. I had three job offers. The first was to be a long-haul truck driver. The second was to be a soap salesman for this pyramid scheme business. And the third was to sell mutual funds. I opted for the third. So being a young Jamaican, 26, in Canada, at the time, Canada was not as cosmopolitan as it is today. And being 26, I knew no one with money as an immigrant. So I had to cold call. When you cold call, people say yes, no, maybe, right? And I didn't take it personally. The no's I didn't take personally. Because although I did not look like your stereotypical Canadian financial advisor, I didn't sound like one. My accent hasn't changed, as you can hear. And it was more strong then. When someone rejected me, I just thought I didn't take it personally. I didn't attribute anything to it. It's just the name of the game. When you cold call, it's a numbers game. But what is most important is those people who said yes. That's what was most important. Because when someone said yes to me, Mike, you can come and see me at my home and tell me about how you're going to plan for me. When I got to their home and I would have two appointments every evening, in addition to my working all day, one at seven, one at nine. When I got to their home and just before ringing the bell, I'd ask myself the question, what is the highest value add I can give to this family here today, tonight? What is that one thing that if I can do, will transform their life? And the answer kept coming back to me, Mike, make them wealthy. Make them wealthy. Because if you can make them wealthy, you'll build a fantastic business and it will transform their life. So that question, every time I speak to any audience, even tonight, whether it's an audience of one or an audience of a thousand, it doesn't matter. I always ask myself that question. What's the highest value add I can give to this person this audience, this class. And it, what it does, it focuses me on arraying all my experiences, my assets, my network to bring to solve this entity's issues. So I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking problem solving for this entity. Right. Okay. So listen, you know, a number of the people in the audience are founders who are starting up their businesses and preparing themselves to get funding from angel investors. Certainly the people in our RevUp incubator are doing just that. Now, I know you don't typically invest in startups or do venture funding, 
But what would you say to those people who are looking to use other people's money? What do you say to them embarking on this journey? What do they need to know in order to succeed? As you know, the, the first round is usually friend and family, right? The first round. When someone invests with you, it's a very high responsibility. They're saying, I trust you. Look, I'm trusting you. Don't lose my capital. That's what they're saying. So therefore, it behooves you to really steward those funds more passionately, guard it, fertilize it, do whatever you can to make sure you don't disappoint those people who trust you. So that's my attitude when someone invests with me. I am a lot more responsible than I am with my own money because it's other people's money. So we have to be conscious. We just can't take money and say, well, it's a commodity. No, 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 no. What's behind it is what you have to realize. Someone is trusting you and they're saying, please, I'm trusting you. Don't lose my money, okay? Yes. So that sense of responsibility and stewardship has to be there. Yeah. So, I mean, even in thinking about the business that they want to start, I've heard you talk about the tenets that they need to be considering in terms of even selecting the business that they want to invite investors into. Maybe you'd want to share some of those gems about the characteristics even of the businesses that they should be developing that would be attractive to investors. Well, firstly, I would say that in terms of the characteristics of the businesses that one should invest in, what I've done, I codified early the characteristics of wealth-creating businesses, right? And there are 10 characteristics. Let me just find them. Because ultimately, that's what founders are about, eh? They want to create wealth, not just for themselves, but for their investors as well. So I know you've talked, for example, about the need to have skin in the game. Yes, so I'm going to tell you. In retrospect, when I look back, I govern my behavior by frameworks. Because what you want to do as an investor is have consistency of behavior over time. So you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and the compounding, the compound factor will trip in. So what I did early is codify the 10 characteristics that are common to all wealth-creating businesses. And if we know these 10 characteristics that are common to wealth-creating businesses, then what we can do, firstly, is make sure that the business that we are building are on side of these characteristics. Should I go through them, Sandra? Well, yeah, I'm, because I think that framework, you know, I've heard you talk about it, and I think it is a very solid framework for founders to consider as they build their businesses. It's a framework that I really believe in. So I'd like you to share it for sure. Okay, so when you are a business person, you are really a capital allocator. That's what you are. You allocate capital. So you just don't see yourself as a business person. You have to see yourself as not only a business person, but also an investor. 
And Warren Buffett famously said when he was asked, how come you're so successful at capital allocation? He said, I'm a better investor because I'm a business person. And conversely, I'm a better business person because I'm an investor. So you cannot be a great capital allocator unless you think like an investor and you also think like a business person, both. There are two roles that, that we have as capital allocators. Again, I codified some characteristics of the most successful investors and their behavior. And I, I codify them, I call them the five laws of wealth creation. The first one is, think about any wealthy person. Just think about a wealthy person. And I'm going to describe the five characteristics of that person as an investor first. And then the 10 characteristics of that person you're thinking of, of the business that that person owns, right? Remember, this is not rehearsed. This I'm sure I'm going to be able to get it 5 out of 5 and 10 out of 10. In terms of the investor characteristics, that person you're thinking of owns a few high-quality businesses. Not too many, a few. So therefore, as aspiring Business people, investors, we have to make sure that we build high-quality businesses, right? Number two, that in person that you're thinking of as an investor thoroughly understands the few high-quality businesses that he or she owns. So that word, understand, is common to every single wealth-creating investor. Number three, that person you're thinking of invests in businesses that are in strong, long-term growth industries. So as an investor, you have to think about the industry you're investing in and whether it has long-term growth characteristics or is it dying? Because to minimize the possibility of losing money, you build high-quality businesses that are in strong, long-term growth industry. It's a combination of quality of the business plus the strength of the industry that will protect your capital and eventually give you good growth. Number four, that person you're thinking of, that investor you're thinking of, created his or her wealth by using other people's money prudently. And lastly, that person you're thinking of, that investor, created his or her wealth by simply holding those few businesses for as long as they remain high quality and as long as the industry remains in a strong long-term growth phase. So those are the five characteristics of successful investors. Now let us take a look at the characteristics of the business that that person you're thinking of owns. The first is, we're going to look at the business characteristics. The first is, the business is run by an owner-operator. The owner and the operator in one, they're married together, right? And so therefore, they're skin in the game. Number two, that successful wealth-creating businesses or the business that, you're think that is owned by the person you're thinking of, there's heavy concentration of ownership in that business. Few people own the business, right? Thirdly, the key stakeholders, the principles of the business, when you think of the principle, you think of the business. When you think of the business, you think of the principle. So there's interchangeability between the face of the business and the business and the business and the face of a person. As an example, when you think of Apple, whose face comes to mind? Steve Jobs. When you think of Steve Jobs, who, which business comes to mind? Apple. 
that is typical of wealth creating businesses. The principal's face is on the shingle. Okay? Number four, invariably, that business is not run by a perfect democracy. It has an autocratic management style. Number five characteristic is that wealth creating business that is owned by the person you're thinking of has entrepreneurial management. Number six, that business has low turnover of management. Number seven, when the business makes a capital allocation decision, it makes a profit and then it has to allocate the profit by a plant, by another company. If the investment is a good one, the net worth of the principals increases. If it's a bad one, the net worth of the principal decreases. In other words, the risk-reward ratio for when capital allocation decisions are made is symmetrical. Tantamount to flip a coin, heads the win, tails the lose. Number eight, the business sets long-term goals. It's not driven by short-termism. Number nine, the focus of the board. Sandra, listen now. <laughs> the focus of the board is singular. Growth, growth, growth. Number 10, validation of success of the business would be fundamentals like customer satisfaction, margins, revenue growth, etc. So those are the 10 characteristics of wealth-creating businesses. And for all of us who are aspiring to create successful businesses, we should keep those characteristics on our refrigerator and make sure we're, we're on side of all of those 10. Yeah, I mean, Mike, I really believe in those principles because so often when I deal with startups, they're thinking about themselves as small businesses. But I always say, think of yourself as a small business that's going to be large very soon. And if you stick to those principles, you'll get there. All right. So, you know, Mike. So, Sandra, may I summarize, please? So it's, yes, it's, please. It's half a paragraph. So, therefore, even as a startup, as a startup business person, you have to see yourself in a dual role. You are an investor in your business. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, you're a business person. Yes, yes. You have that dual role. Absolutely. I just wanted to say that to tie off that paragraph. And that's so important. And I'm glad you touched on the role of the board because for a lot of the founders who are getting equity investments, having a board is such a new thing to them. And being accountable, making sure that you are working to your plan and working to increase the value of the business. But let me ask you, because this is one question that came in from one of our founders in the Revop cohort. What are some of the signs that founders will know that their business is on the right path? Uh, hmm. Customer satisfaction. Customer referrals. When customers refer you to other customers, then you know you're doing the right thing. In fact, I have a saying in my business, I want to drive marketing costs down to zero. Right? I want to drive marketing costs down to zero. And the only way to drive marketing costs down to zero is to have people talk about you and refer customers to you. Then you don't have to spend any money marketing. And you can only do that if you do three things very well. The first is 
build the best reputation. Have your business build the best, it's the best reputation for itself. The second thing is the business has to be differentiated in the marketplace. So every day we should be waking up and saying, how am I making sure that my business is not regressing to becoming a commodity? So it has to be an everyday thought. How is my business differentiated in the marketplace? And the third thing we have to do really well is to make sure we honestly address customers' needs. Honestly. Not just marketing to sell. We really address customers' needs wholeheartedly. The focus has to be on the customer. Yes. Focus has to be on the customer. But, you know, the thing is that the startup journey is difficult. Eh? I mean, we know the statistics about failures, startup failures. And many founders kind of want to know if things aren't going well, when should they pivot? Should they give up? Should they stay the path? When is it resilience versus foolhardiness in terms of, you know, I know perseverance is one of the key characteristics of an entrepreneur, but what are the signals that one should probably take on board to say, well, this is maybe not the best path for this business? Well, firstly, every business will go through what we call the hockey stick curve. In other words, you know what a hockey stick looks like. It's, you have the handle, and it's long, and then it's, you have that part that hits the ball, right? So we call that's the hockey stick curve. So you start off at the handle of the hockey stick, the top of the handle, and you, 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 you work, you work, you work. You try to differentiate, you build your business, and it takes a while. And if you don't persevere through those downs, you will not get to nirvana, which is... At some point, the business is going to go start going up the gradient of the curve, right? And right at that inflection point, when you start right at the nook of the, the curve, between the time you start and that nook, that time frame, you put out a lot of effort and you get a disproportionately low amount of results. After you have passed that inflection point, it flips. You put out a little bit of effort and you get a disproportionately high amount of returns. But most people don't get to that inflection point. They give up. So the question is, what is the antidote to giving up? That's the question. So I would say the antidote to giving up is first your own belief in what you're doing. Because your belief in what you're doing will invoke commitment. It will invoke perseverance. Then uh, you can say, well, you know, I, I can believe, I can invo- I can have commitment, and I can persevere. But if your business is not differentiated, and I go back to those three characteristics, you have to build the best reputation, it has to be differentiated, and you have to address customers' needs wholeheartedly. So we should always go back to those three tick boxes and ask ourselves the question, periodically, periodically, probably quarterly, how is my business differentiated in the marketplace is it still differentiated or is it regressing to be becoming a commodity because you have lots of new entrants in the same sector secondly what's the reputation of my business and thirdly am i really and truly addressing clients needs am i really doing it or we just get caught up in marketing and selling what we think they want and to make money i would suggest Periodically, quarterly, we ask those three questions. Reputation, 
differentiation, and am I really addressing customers' needs? And once you go through that, you'll have a good gauge as to whether you're on the right track or not. So, Mike, I know that you are very passionate about mentoring young people and young entrepreneurs. For those people who maybe don't have access to somebody like you, how should they build genuine relationships and rapport with successful people if they don't have access to the big wigs like you? What should they be doing to build those relationships that will give them access to knowledge and experience? What would you suggest that they do? Well, firstly, and this just goes back to a general framework for being successful at any endeavor, any endeavor. If you want to be the best pastor, the best athlete, the best business person, the best parent, this framework will always work. Number one, identify a role model. Who before me has embarked on this endeavor that I am embarking on and had eminent success in this area? I have to identify a role model. Then secondly, kneel at the role model's feet figuratively and get the recipe. Today, it's easier because information is ubiquitous today on the internet. So you can get the recipe. You can read, you can watch documentary, YouTube videos, get the recipe. How did this person do it? And thirdly, don't change the recipe. Do the same, execute the same, right? So that three-step formula in business is also valid. So now in terms of role modelship, I had a role model early in business, but I didn't meet this man, nor did I have much interaction with him. His name is Warren Buffett. This was back in 1978. He was in Omaha, Nebraska. I was, I was in Canada. But I read about his, his methodology, and his methodology ran clear with me. And I just decided that I'm going to emulate him. Emulating someone you respect that will keep you on the straight and narrow because they've been successful. And once you carry out the recipe faithfully without changing it, then you know it's just a matter of time before you become successful also. No, I think that's great advice. I think we have a question. Yeah, we have a few questions coming in. Here's one from Raynald James on LinkedIn. He says, what's the best way to vet your team as you expand, not only for their skills, but the attitude which matches the company culture which you're trying to build? That's a great question, Mr. James. Actually, Reynold is in our RevUp group. Yeah. So there's another dogma I have. It's an adage. Success begets complacency, begets failure. You become successful, you stop doing the things that made you successful in the first place. You stop training, you stop being as energetic, you stop being as passionate, you stop being as hardworking once you're successful. And if you change the formula, you're going to get a different result. So success leads to complacency or arrogance leads to failure. And because, Reynold, you don't want to be a failure, right? You always have to remember, what did I do when I just came into the business and I had these grand aspirations? What did I do? What was my routine like? How did I address issues? I didn't have any money. So I had to substitute creativity for deep pockets because I didn't have any deep pockets. So I had to be creative. So as we grow, 
We have to remember those characteristics that made us successful in the first place and find a way that the last person in is somehow indoctrinated into what you are like when you're, when you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and when the business was just in its infancy and it was high aspirational, high energy, low capital. So you had to bootstrap the business and you had to be very creative. You want for the last person in to have those characteristics. And if you can do that, then your, the culture will be propagated by everybody. And that is a challenge. And the bigger you grow, the more difficult it is. So you have to somehow institutionalize some format to keep that in mind. The last, the last person into that I employ has to be inculcated to know how the business became successful. And that person should be excited to take the baton and run with the characteristics that the business had initially so that it continues. Good advice, Reynold. All right, we have another question. Fitzroy Smith. So Fitzroy says, as a startup, I'm thinking of my board. I was just going to go there, Fitzroy. How many people do you think should be in a business? I have three names so far. I want to keep it small. This is three people for your board. Yeah, board, yeah. Well, firstly, you want the board to be nimble. You don't want the board to be bureaucratic. You want the board to represent your clientele, your clients. This is have that connection in terms of your clients. You want the board to be entrepreneurial. You want the board to be growth oriented because board members, remember, they're not necessarily the owners. So they are invariably risk averse. And if you have too many risk averse people on the board, the business is going to become too conservative, which is not how the business got to where that was how it was when it, when it was going through its success growth phase. So you want to have people who can think risk, but at the same time, who are not paralyzed by risk that they don't think growth also. So in terms of a number, uh, I would say for a small business, five, six. Yeah, I think five is an ideal size. And I just want to say, Fitzroy, that certainly if you are looking for an angel investment, we're talking about Board of Five with actually two investors. So they have ownership in the business. They have skin in the game and they are wanting to see the business grow. So thank you for that question. Let's take another question. Bevan King. Okay, Bevan, thanks for posing your question. He says, good evening and thanks so much for sharing with us. You mentioned the power of compounding. What are some compound effects you are currently benefiting from? And how did you decide which to choose? Bevan, pleased to meet you and thank you very much. Great question. Bevan, if I were to start over again, well, in fact, what I do, I teach my children, I pound into my children that their reputation is paramount. And you have to, from the get-go, develop a plan to build the best reputation from the get-go. And every day, you do everything to burnish that reputation and nothing to tarnish it, right? All of us should have a reputational plan, a plan to the reputation that we want to have eventually. And then we work towards that. It's like a project. The sooner you start that project, the better. As you know, compounding 
only gets better with time. So the best time to start is when you're born. So you're benefiting, the compounding effect you're benefiting from, Michael, is the reputation. Is my, my reputation. Is my reputation. You see, my reputation is like a passport. I go into a country. I say, I'm Michael Leachin. It's synonymous with certain things, right? And it gives me access. You have to determine what you want to be known for. Yes. And then you work towards it. You have a plan to get towards that which you are, would like to be known for. In my case, I want to be known as a business person with a heart. So what I did, I made sure I don't forget it. So I enshrined it in terms of my mantra. And it's prosperitas cum caritate, which is prosperity with care. And it's also, in the long run, a great business strategy. Because you cannot be an island of prosperity in a sea of despair. Your business has to take on the responsibility of uplifting its community. So prosperitas cum caritate is my personal mantra, my business mantra. And as you know, NCB's business mantra is building a better Jamaica, right? Well, it's, it's, it's changed a little bit now, but it was... It's really building community, which is something that NCB does so well. I would say, Bevon, as an aspiring business person or as a scale-up, you always have to think community also. You think community and how can I make my business a vessel to uplift my community? Man, you'll build a fantastic business because you're not thinking about your own personal aggrandizement. You're thinking about how to build a better community and the community will turn around and support you. Great. Thank you so much. I'm not sure who this person is from Able Media 876. Why can't a democracy work in a business? He asked. You mentioned, you talked about this earlier, Mike. Should it always be autocratic? And also, what are your thoughts on crypto? Okay, suppose you want to be the fastest. Your aspiration is to become a fast runner. Are you going to go around the room and ask the fastest man, person, woman in the room and the slowest woman in the room and take a vote as to what you should do? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> Obviously not, right? But you may go around the room and just listen to people's opinion and make your decisions based on their opinion. But if everybody has a vote on what you should do, you're not going to be Usain Bolt, right? You're going to be subpar because everybody always have an opinion. You walk down King Street and you say, tell me, why is the sky blue today? You ask 10 people, you're going to get 10 different answers. You ask any question of anybody, they'll give you an answer. Whether it's erudite or foolish, it doesn't matter. So you have to realize that one man, one vote, when it comes to decision-making, is not necessarily the most optimal way to go. Also, people with no skin in the game, they have less to lose when things go wrong. Right. And if they can also vote without having a skin in the game, there's something wrong. If we all have skin in the game, it's a different matter. All right. But there was another part of that question, Mike. Your thoughts on crypto? <laughs> oh, my thoughts on crypto. Crypto as an investment or as a business? As an investment, crypto is not an investment. Crypto is not an investment, it's a speculation. An investment 
is owning something that's tangible or a service that you're giving that eventually give you cash flow and pay dividends. So crypto is not a business, not an investment. It's speculation. All right. On that note, Mike, what do you think are some of the great business opportunities that founders should pursue for our time? Okay. I'll just go through with you how I think about what businesses I should be looking to invest in, right? And I'll go through with you a methodology that I used when I first started. Remember the five laws of wealth creation? Number one, own a few high-quality businesses. Number two, that make sure you understand them. Number three, they should be in strong long-term growth industries. Number four, you should use other people's money prudently. And lastly, you should hold them for as long as they remain high-quality and the industry remains intact, right? So the question is, how do I make sure that I have a, build a high-quality business and I, what industry should that business be in, right? Most of us... When we're thinking about a business, we don't think about the industry enough. So fortunately, I didn't make that mistake early. That's why I'm here. I'm a member of the baby boomer cohort. And that cohort is encompassed by people, children who were born, I'm no longer a child, who were born between the years 1946 and 1964. And that cohort of people, represent the largest segment of the population in North America, that cohort. So whatever that cohort does, there goes the economy. Luckily, I figured out a little early. So when I was 32 in 1983, I thought, okay, following the demographics of the baby boomer is a great way to predict where things are going. So I said, okay, I'm 32. The largest percent of the population is in my age bracket. What do 32-year-old families do? Well, they're in, they're buying a house, they're buying a car, they're buying furniture, they're buying crockery, they're buying bed sheets. They're consuming. That's what they're doing in that age band. So we, therefore, Mike, the largest percentage of the North American population today is engaged in massive consumption. So we are in a consumption boom. This was in the early 80s. But you don't make money by doing what is happening now. You make money by being where the ball is going, right? Not where the ball is or has been. You make money where the ball is going. So in 83, I was 32. I thought, in the next 10 years, I'll be 42. What do 42-year-old people think about? Oh my gosh, I don't want to have enough money to retire comfortably. So we have now the largest percentage of the population is 10 years from now going to come to that realization. So coming is going to be a saving and investing boom. So I want to make sure that from now in 83, I start laying my foundation to take advantage of that coming boom, which is what I did. So I thought I can buy shares in a bank. But if you own shares in a bank, it's not the bullseye for saving and investing because you can get loan losses. I can buy shares in an insurance company, but when you buy shares in an insurance company, it's still not the bullseye for saving and investing because you can get underwriting losses. Or I can buy an asset management business, or, or I can buy asset management businesses, or I can start one. 
right? Because that's the bullseye. And that's what I did. I started an asset management business with 800,000 of other people's money. I had a philosophy, the five laws, which I, I just explained to you. And I managed the portfolio based on selecting businesses that met the criteria of wealth creating businesses, the 10 characteristics I gave you. Right. So that's a perfect framework. I mean, you're not going to be, say, going to this or going to that. But if you think about all of those characteristics, then you can find the industry and the business that's going to make you wealthy. Thanks for that, Matt. So the question is, what am I doing today? Based on this, on the same line of thinking. Today, I'm just using the demographics of the population as a guide to where things are going. Today, I'm 71. And you ask the question, okay, so what do 70-year-old people think about? Oh my gosh, I want to live long. I want to live a high quality of life. So there is coming a healthcare boom because the, the largest percentage of the North American population, the baby boomers, are thinking this way. Yes. Getting older and thinking this way. So therefore, the question is, what is bingo in the healthcare industry, given this demographic trend that's coming? Well, I can invest in a pharmaceutical company. I can invest in long-term healthcare business. Or I can realize, you know what? When people become old and older, they are more prone to get cancer. So oncology is going to be a boom within a boom of healthcare. So I can invest in oncology. But when you think about oncology, there are two modalities of treatment that are 80 years old. First, external beam radiation. Secondly, chemotherapy. But those are 80 years old. They're ripe for, for disruption. So what is going to disrupt those two modalities is... New technologies. The new technology, exactly. And Mike, I wish we had enough time to get into that investment that you have made because it's fascinating every time you share with me information on the breakthroughs that are coming. But we do have some startups lined up. So I know they're anxious to ask you their question. So the first person we have is... Nada Ventura from Easy Payments. All right, Nada. Nada. Hi. How are you? Good night, Mr. Leachin. Please to Good night, Miss Glasgow. Hello. I'm so pleased to be here. So my question, statement then question. International VCs and analyst firms are reporting that 2021 was the biggest year ever for investment funding for fintechs. One of our goals is to make our fintech, easypayments.com, attractive to international firms looking to scale through investments or acquisition. So my question to you is, Mr. Leachin, how do you see the Caribbean and Latin American fintech landscape evolving? And what are some of the key pillars that you think we should focus on as an early stage market entrant? Well, firstly, in 2002, which is when I decided to buy an interest in, in a national commercial bank, here's the model I had in mind. Holland, which is a country of, uh, I think, 13 million people, Holland, right? And if they, they have two major banks. The first is ING and the second is um, AMBRO. And those two major banks, if you put them together, they're about the fifth or sixth largest bank in the world, emanating from a country with 11 million people. That to me was inspirational because I thought Jamaica has 3 million people. 
the eminence and success of a business that has international scope isn't limited to the population where the business is domiciled in. That was the conclusion I made from the Holland example, right? So how I would look at it is making sure that I use the Caribbean as a testing ground, but always have in mind the larger markets because scaling up in Jamaica is fine, right? But you want to, be, you want to build businesses uh, that are, again, with three characteristics, focus on three characteristics, the best reputation, the best differentiation, differentiation, and how are you really addressing clients' needs? And if you can do those at the highest level, it doesn't matter where your head office is. So just focus on making sure you're always, because the payments business now, fintech, is getting to be a crowded area. The barrier to entry is not that high. You can start a fintech company in your garage. So therefore, those three characteristics, you have to be a lot more focused on because the space is so crowded. And then excellence of execution of those three characteristics. Once you focus on those three characteristics and the quality of execution to make it relevant to the world community, then it's just a matter of advocacy, advocacy, and to get the word out. So you see Jamaica as a proven ground, but making sure your standard is the best of class anywhere in the world. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nada, for that question and good luck with easypayments.com. All right, Narda. <laughs> so I think we have now Ferron Brand. Ferron, are you on land? Ferron is another member of our cohorts, Mike. Ferron, you just want to quickly, like your 10-second elevator pitch, tell Mike what you do and then follow up with your question. Uh, hi, Mr. Leachin, and thanks for being here, Sandra. So my name is Ferron. I am a marine engineer by profession, but our company is Mini Car Rentals. And what we do is we allow people the ability to rent cars from a short-term period to a long-term period, so from six hours to as many days as possible. My question to you is about, as young businesses, we many times face having businesses family, the problem of having that balance. How do we have that balance how did you generate that balance when you started of having your family and dedicating your time to grow your business with that level of passion and moving the business forward to where you are today? Well, firstly, you have to have a supportive partner. You have to have a supportive partner. That's the first criterion. <laughs> so choose your partner well. Make sure your partner is supportive because balance isn't every day. Balance isn't every month. Balance isn't every year right? But overall in your life, you want balance, but it's not linear, right? Especially when it's a startup, it's highly front-end loaded in terms of your time, your resources, your energy, right? Your commitment is highly front-end loaded, so you can't be balanced. That's very true. In fact, this word balance, we have to be careful because nobody who is eminently successful would be seen as balanced. It's like they just had a passion in a certain area and that's what drives them. They don't care about physical fitness. They don't care about everything else. They don't try to balance out everything every day. Anybody who is eminently successful, they're driven 
And unfortunately, some things will get left behind. Unfortunately. But so it's what you want for yourself, Ferron, uh, and how far you want to go. In summary, every business is front-end loaded. So definitely, when you're just getting started, you can be balanced. But then again, here's a problem. If you change that formula, once you have become successful, then your business is going to fail. <laughs> right? <laughs> Mike, you would agree, because I know you're an exercise buff. So some of the balance has to come from leading a healthy lifestyle. Yes, discipline. Getting your exercise in and doing the things that will keep your mind and body sharp. That's part of just building the ecosystem around what you're doing. Yeah. Right? Versus being social and doing what the average person would call balance. Ferron, my balance is I want to make sure that I can run a sprint and a marathon till I'm 120. So I do everything to maintain it. As, as Sandra said, I work out every morning, right? I've always done that. I try to sleep five, six hours a night. My wife tells me that's not enough, but I'm too excited to sleep any longer, right? Likewise, I can understand that feeling. I don't balance in terms of sleep. I just get, too much to do. Too much yeah, to well, do. I can definitely understand that feeling. I get excited, right? Yeah. Great. Thank you, Mr. Leachin. You're All welcome. Right. All the best. All right. I think we have Cordell coming up now. Cordell Williams Graham, who is the president of the Young Entrepreneurs Association. Hi, Cordell. Hi, nice to see you again, Mr. Leachin. Yeah, here. <laughs> yes. All right. So I am the CEO of Transformational Life Solutions and president of the YEA, the Young Entrepreneurs Association, as Sandra just said. And in both cases, I help entrepreneurs to grow personally, professionally, and commercially. And over the last two years, um, the frameworks, and we are big on frameworks and plans, these that entrepreneurs have put in place have been literally wiped out, and many have been left void of confidence and certainty. So as a growth ambassador, which you have built up quite a reputation for, what's your advice on how entrepreneurs can continue to create value and grow with clarity and confidence in this ever-changing and challenging environment? And what's your advice on how business support organizations like the Young Entrepreneurs Association can help them along this journey? Okay, uh, I'm going to give you a formula that I promised Sandra I, I, I'll, I'll give tonight. You thought I forgot, Sandra? No, I don't forget. For the first part of the question, just think about the most successful CEOs in the world. If you ask yourself the question, what are the three most heavily weighted characteristics of the most successful CEOs? Right? You'll probably agree with me. The following are the three most successful characteristics of the most successful CEOs in the world. Number one, they're strategists. They think strategically. So number two, a strategy without an execution plan is meaningless. Strategy is 10%. Execution is 90%. Lots of people are, they have many staff strategies, but they don't execute. And thirdly, the third most, not necessarily in order of uh, waiting, but the third characteristics of the most successful CEOs in the world is their passionate advocates. So 
Cardell, Sandra, what is the first letter of the word strategy? Is that a trick question? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, do, I, do I look tricky to you? Do I look no? Okay. Cordell, Sandra, what is the first letter of the word execute? E. What's the first letter of the word advocacy? A. A. What does it spell? C. C. Exactly. So, can you imagine if you applied, firstly, C, strategy, execution, advocacy, to everything you do in your life? You have children? Yes, yes. I have a daughter, yeah. Yeah, you want your daughter to be a, a leader, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so what's the framework you're using to help her to become a great leader? Without thinking about it, <laughs> you, just, you just apply C to her. What's your daughter's name, Cordell? Kyle. Kyle. So you say, Kyle, look. From, how old is Kyle? She's seven. Seven. Tonight, you're going to say, Kyle, we're going to talk about C. Everything you do. You want to go to the movie? You want to go to the movie, Kyle? She's right here. You want to? Hi, Kyle. Whoa, beautiful. Yes, Mr. Leachin. Pleased to Special meet you, Kyle. Pleased to meet you. <laughs> okay, so you sit there. You sit there, Kyle, and listen. Listen, right? Okay? Mommy's going to talk to you when we're finished about C. S-E-A. So everything you do from now, Kyle, you want to apply See to it. You want to go to the movie? You say, okay, mommy, I want to go to the movie. Mommy, S means strategy. I need a strategy to get to the movie. How am I going to get there? Am I going to walk? Am I going to drive? When am I going to do it? Then I need to execute on it. And then I need to advocate it. I need to sell mommy that, mommy, I need to go to this movie. Right? And here are the reasons why. So now you want Kyle to be the best strategist. So how do you encourage those strategic latency that she has. You probably should have her enroll in the chess club because chess, you think, you think five moves down the road in chess, 10 moves down the road, right? So probably in, the, in developing Kyle to be a great strategist from now, probably you should get her enrolled in chess and just think about what else can I do to have her think strategically, to have her think three moves down the road. Secondly, you want Kyle to execute. Not only do you have a plan, but a plan has to come with execution. Not only do you have a strategy, but you have to have an execution plan for that strategy. So Kyle, we have to figure out how we're going to do it and what milestones we're going to have to measure ourselves at when we're executing. And Kyle, you want to make Kyle the best advocate in the world. So how do you develop Kyle to be the best advocate in the world? Well, probably you should have her join the debating club and probably you should have her get enrolled in drama so she can communicate well and confidently. So you see, if you can apply C, not only to business, but in development, in course selection, right? Wow. If you can apply that to your organization, every business unit head should, should come to you with their C plan. And you're going to measure them and pay them, be compensate them based on their C. So every quarter, they come to you with their strategy, execution, and advocacy plan. Thank you, sir. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. You got it. You, you, there you have it. So we have our last question now from 
Arnaldo Brown. Mike, I don't know if you have ever met Arnaldo. He's actually a, I don't know if I should call you a former politician, Arnaldo, but he was a, um, a junior minister. Weren't you in the ministry of, or your minister? I can't remember. It was so long ago. No, junior minister. Junior minister in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Foreign Trade. And he's now a beekeeper, right? He's now in the honey business. So, Arnaldo, want to pose your question? Well, thank you very much. And uh, my direction is in agriculture because I understand that you have entered the sector. And I want to find out from you what has been your experience so far and if you intend on staying the course. Boy, agriculture, tough business. Very tough business because there are so many external factors that you don't control, but they control you. And that's the reason why in Jamaica, our agricultural industry is underdeveloped. because We are, we are more traders because it's easy to buy and sell, buy and sell than to farm. Right? But we need farming to have food security. When you think about farming, it's a commodity, right? It's a commodity. There's no difference between your honey and some other honey from St. Elizabeth or Portland or wherever. Honey is honey, right? It's a commodity. It's like rice. There's no, what's the difference between one rice grain and the next? They're the same. So, with agriculture, basically, because it's a commodity, and the winner in the com in any and every commodity business is the lowest cost producer. So, Arnaldo, you have to figure out that should be your focus. How am I going to make sure I'm in the commodity business? I, Arnaldo Brown, have chosen to be in the commodity business. Therefore, how am I going to make sure that I am the lowest cost producer? Because at the end of the day, people buy based on price, commodities, nothing else, right? So the only way you can be the lowest cost producer if you have scale, right? So it doesn't make sense getting in as a as a play play business, right? You have to have a, a scale up <laughs> a scale up plan. So what the first thing you should one should be doing, not necessarily in terms of scale, is saying, okay, remember I, I went through a protocol. You want to be successful at any endeavor. There are three things you should do. I identify a role model, get the recipe, and do the same. So you are trying to solve for scale in the, in the bee business, the honey business, right? In other words, what does a scaled honey business look like? How many bees, how many hives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what you probably should be doing, first thing you should be doing as an assignment, is Googling the most successful honey farm in the world. What does it look like? What does it look like? Because I want to make sure I am doing the right the things that will make me the most successful honey honey farm in the world. So I want to see, I want to see it, what it looks like. I can aspire to become that. Have a North Star, right? How many acres? How close are they are the hives together, space together? How many hives per acre? Etc. 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 How should the hives be turned? Northeast, southwest, facing the sun in the morning. Sun in the evening, I don't know. I don't know what the criteria are. But I'm just saying, get the recipe, right? Firstly, what's the size, scale? Then you know what you have to do, right? Because only when you have scale can you become the lowest cost producer. And that's when you'll, become, you'll have a successful business in agriculture. Sure. 
I see Sandra smiling because she said something similar. <laughs> and Ali, you'll recall our, our, our conversation last week. Yeah, yes. The very same thing. So thank you for that question. I think we're at the end of our question. I mean, we have actually gone over 10 minutes, the time that we asked you to stay, Mike. So I don't know how I can thank you, but I just want to remind everybody that RevUp has a new cohort starting in June. We're going to be looking at applications. And just to let everybody know, especially our friends from the Caribbean, that they will be part of this cohort going forward. And even better, that Michael Leachin has offered to mentor three of the founders in the cohort. Didn't you, Mike? <laughs> you see, I'm being ambitious. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't know. There's one assumption here. Yes. That they want to see, hear me again. Oh, gosh. get No, listen. I will tell you guys that having known Michael and sort of been listening to him and learning from him over the last two decades, there is so much to learn. Every time I see Mike and we have a conversation, I learn something new. Thank you, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say if you are part of the next cohort, and you are selected to be mentored by Michael Leachin, you will be a very lucky founder. So I want to thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time this evening. I know your time is very valuable, and we really do appreciate that you were here to share all your experiences and all the frameworks that guide you in life and in business decision-making. And we hope to have you back again sometime in the future. And thank you all for coming. And I want to say a special thanks to Paul Stennett from Amazing Gains, who are the podcast producers for this. And also, I want to thank the Limners and Bards, Kimala Bennett, who is one of our angel investors, for providing some of the equipment, the lighting that we had this evening. And, and thank you all so much, Mike. Thank you. Before I go, Sandra, as you know, my, I enjoy being able to contribute in whatever way I can. I've had the benefit of a successful career uh, internationally in many sectors. And it would, it full, it would full, give me fulfillment to be able to continue, to be able to impact on our young, bright aspirants. So however many times you want to invite me back onto your show, I will gladly accept. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And I want to also just say a special thanks to NCB, who is one of the sponsors of RevUp, and the, the Development Bank of Jamaica and the Inter-American Development Bank. I'm really excited about where RevUp is going, and we Look forward to welcoming you back, Mike. Thank you, everybody, and good evening to you.